In light of the demands of ministry and the impact that these demands can have on those who are involved in ministry, as well as their families, Jennifer and I decided early in our marriage that we would make it a priority to take what we called one significant family vacation every year. And so through the years, we've kept that commitment for the most part, sometimes a little more than I had thought I was signing up for at the time. But through the years, we've kept that commitment, sometimes flying to a destination, sometimes driving, sometimes driving and then flying, sometimes flying and then driving. You get the idea. And the focus of our trips has always been the anticipation and the excitement of the destination, where we're going to end up when we finally get there, what it was going to be like when we get there. Now, being practical people, we also prepared as best we could for the journey. Jen would pack things to keep the girls engaged and entertained to make the journey as smooth as possible so we could get to the destination in one piece. Just as the girls were teetering on the verge of chaos and a piranha hour, Jen would reach into her Mary Poppins bag and produce something from the dollar store, a craft, a book, a game, an idea, anticipating that this moment would come ready for it so we could all keep our sanity as we're continuing this journey. I remember early in, when the girls were young when, when Costco came to our area. It was called Price Club then. And there was this little 13-inch TV-VCR combo that you could plug into your vehicle. It was only this big, but it was like this deep, right? Long before flat screens. And so I built this little shelf that would sit between the two front seats of the van, and we set this up, and the girls could watch their VHS movies without the pressure of having to even rewind them at the end because we were on a trip, to occupy them to help make the journey successful. There's been a lot of 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. mornings where we dragged ourselves and our kids out of bed for an early morning flight or a 12-hour day of driving. Now, I admit to you, on more than one occasion, I have been sitting in the driveway, packed, Everybody in the family in the vehicle. And there is so much chaos and we haven't even left the driveway yet that I have already regretted that I even signed up to go on this vacation. Anyone ever been there? Like we haven't even left the driveway and we already hate each other. Often it would have been great if we could have just gone from here to there with no journey in between. But we've learned that without the journey, there's no destination. It's a significant and important part of the destination. Now, you've heard us talk a lot over the past few years of the type of church that we want to be, and most of our conversation has centered around the destination, what it's going to look like when we get there, what it is we're striving for, who it is we want to become, painting that picture of the future. And why not? Because we are told that that's what good leaders do. Good leadership 
paints a picture of the future that is so vivid and so compelling that people want it more than anything. They long for it. They desire it. They'll pursue it at any cost. That's what good leaders do. But I also believe that good leaders prepare people for the, for the journey to the future destination as well. It's not enough to paint a picture of what the future can be, but we also have to be prepared for the journey to get there. And so today we are launching a new series, which I've entitled, Are We There Yet? Getting from Here to There. Now this series is based on the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And during this series, we're going to be considering what it is that's going to be necessary to make the journey from here to there, from where we currently are to where it is that God is leading us. And so we're going to be considering what it is that we can learn from this biblical account, this biblical story, That will help us not only as individuals, but as a church, successfully navigate the journey from here to there. Because I believe that if we can embrace the necessities, if we can embrace what it takes to get there, I believe we'll successfully arrive at our destination having benefited significantly from the journey. So the first necessity that I want to talk to you about today is godly discontent. Godly discontent. And we're going to start by reading Exodus chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, in order for us to consider godly discontentment, we're going to navigate the promise, the problem, and then the plan. I tried for it to not be three Ps, but it kept happening, and I just had to assume that it was the Spirit's anointing, and I went with it. It's not a gimmick. The promise. To appreciate what's happening in this current story of what I read this morning, we need to understand the backstory. What's, what has been happening to leading up to the context in this point and to this point? And so there are three significant events that kind of shape the promise for us to help understand this story. The first was the call of Abraham. Now you're going to notice that I am going to go into very little detail because otherwise we would be here for ever just, just telling this whole story. But in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, we read the account of God's call of Abraham, or Abram as he was known at that time. And God asked him to leave his homeland, to leave his clan, his family, and move to a new land that God would give to him and to his descendants. That God would bless him with descendants, that his line would become this great nation, And that this nation would be a channel of God's blessing to other nations. And so Abram is 75 years old. 
He doesn't have any children. He's, you know, he, and he sets out without debate for a land that he's never seen, promised by a God that he really doesn't know. We find out later that his family were actual idol worshipers with only his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, and his family, some servants and livestock, and off they go. Second piece that's important is Jacob and his sons. God blessed Abraham as promise, gave him a son, Isaac, who in turn had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. God's promise is now slowly unfolding. We're told that Jacob favored one of his sons, Joseph, which resulted in the resentment of his brothers, who then in turn sold him into slavery and lied to their father that he had been eaten by a wild animal. That's hard to come home after you've been given responsibility to look after your little brother. Sorry, he was eaten by an animal. Joseph ended up in Egypt. God miraculously allowed him to rise to second in command and to prepare Egypt for an upcoming famine. Famine caused Joseph's brothers to come to Egypt for food. And we've talked about this story at great length a couple years ago as we did a series, which resulted in the eventual reconciliation and the reuniting of the family in Egypt. Joseph allowed them to come and enter Egypt, but only Pharaoh could allow them to stay. And so a plea is made by Joseph, and in Genesis 47, 5 to 6, Pharaoh tells Joseph he's grateful for all that he's done. He gives his family the land of Goshen, which is the prime real estate for raising livestock. And not only that, but said, since you are experienced with livestock, you're going to be in charge of my livestock. Then we move on to Joseph's death. Abraham's descendants had successfully settled in Egypt. The food was plentiful. They had good jobs. They're a growing family. At the time of Joseph's death, there are over 70 in the family in total that are living in Egypt. And so Joseph called his brothers together and he says, I want you to know that I'm about to die. And he reminded them of God's promise to Abraham of a promised land, of this, of this nation that he was going to create. You see, Egypt was not their destiny. As good as it was in this moment, at this present time, God had greater things in store for his people. And so Joseph reminds them, God is going to keep his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to lead you out of Egypt to this new land. And he made them swear an oath that when that time comes, when you go, I want you to carry my bones with you to this new land. And with that, Joseph died and the family was left comfortably in Egypt. Now, it's important to note in, in considering the promise, while the land itself is often the focus of the promise, it's more than the land in this it is the creation of a people that is at the heart of the promise. A people that will occupy this land. A people who will serve God. A people who will honor God with obedience to Him and be a blessing to the nations around them. So we have the promise. Then we have the problem. Exodus 1.6 begins with the word now. It's a transition word. And it's transitioning 
between Joseph and his brothers dying in Egypt and their descendants carrying on. This is not a new story. It's a new chapter in God's promise, in God's leading, in God's story. And so just as everything seems to be going fine, everything is great, a serious problem arise, arises for the Israelites, and it's twofold. The first is growth. In Exodus 1, 6, and 7, we're told that the Israelites were fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They had become exceedingly numerous. In fact, the Hebrew language for trying to help us understand how many there were is the same words that are used for a team of fish, a school of fish, or a swarm of bees. There's this countless number. It's huge. It's just, it's, it's enormous. There's many of them. And so based on the opinion of who you want to believe, which, which scholar, we have come to conclude that Abraham's descendants were in Egypt anywhere from a minimum of 230 years to a maximum of, I'm sorry, 215 years to a maximum of 430. And it appears that they're content. They're content in Egypt. They're living off the best land. They have the best jobs. They have plenty of food to eat. There's no urgency to get to the promised land. Life here and now is great. This is a great life. And we're just growing leaps and bounds. Every year at Christmas, the table gets bigger. The group are growing at an exceptional rate. But the second part of the problem is a new king. You see, what seems like a blessing to the Israelites has become a concern for the new king, for Pharaoh. And so we're told in Exodus 1, 8 to 14, that the new king didn't know Joseph. He lacked context for what Joseph had done for Egypt, his family being allowed to stay. He, he didn't understand or know any of that. He didn't understand why they were given the best land. History meant little, if anything, to him. All he saw was this group of Israelites who were exploding in number, and it caused him concern. It caused him fear because he saw them as a threat. What would keep them from joining with the enemy? If someone attacked Egypt, who says that they would fight for Egypt? Maybe they would join the enemy, and there's so many of them on the inside that they would destroy us. He didn't trust them. They were outsiders with intimidating numbers. So his first response was to force them into hard labor, and they became slaves. And instantly life became, went from being good to being bitter and cruel and filled with bondage. And see, we see these conflicting outcomes. We see God who wants multiplication because he's building a people. And we see Pharaoh who wants subtraction because he wants to control the population threat. And so we're told the more Pharaoh afflicted them, the more they multiplied. He wasn't solving his problem. So then he goes to plan B. When slavery didn't slow the growth, he thought, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a decree that all Hebrew male children who are born be killed. So he told the midwives, as soon as a baby is born, normally you would take that child and wash it. When you take that child, if it's a male child, I want you to kill it immediately. Well, there was a problem. The midwives feared God. And so they didn't do it. 
And when confronted, they lied to Pharaoh and said, listen, you need to understand, these Hebrew women are, are different than Egyptian women. They're strong. They're hardy. They deliver before we even arrive. We can't, we can't control this. And so when plan B failed, he went to plan C and said, fine, all Hebrew children, under, male children under the age of three are to be drowned in the Nile. God's people had gone from contentment in Egypt from living off the best land, having the best jobs, plenty of food to eat, no urgency to get to the promised land, to now slavery, hard labor, cruel treatment, abuse, misery, and the murder of their children. There's a problem. But then there's a plan. One Hebrew family has a son. Their mother hides him in a floating basket in the Nile River to protect him. He's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter as she's bathing. He's brought to the palace and raised as her own, and we know him as Moses. One day when he was a man, he intervened in the mistreatment of a Hebrew slave, killed the Egyptian taskmaster, buried him in the sand, which resulted in him running for his life. Ended up meeting a family out on the hills, marrying their daughter, and working for his father-in-law as a shepherd. The Israelites are mired in misery. The promise of God to their forefathers is not even on the radar. This is their reality. This is their life. Nothing is going to change. There's a hopelessness in their lives. Moses is out on the mountain. He's not focused on God's promise. He's not focused on God's people. He's been there for 40 years. He's accepted this new reality. 40 years is a long time. The promise of God in his whole life, they're, they're a part of history. They're a part of the past. They're, they're long gone. And here we find in the midst of this acceptance, in the midst of this misery and apparent defeat and lost dreams and what, ha- what appears to be broken promises, God gets involved and he breaks into this with a plan. And there are three aspects of his plan. First is action. In Exodus 3, 7 to 10, God spoke to Moses and he told him, he said, listen, Moses, I see what's happening to my people. I hear their cries. I'm concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down. Now, he isn't literally, but what he's saying here is I'm about to intervene in their circumstances. I'm going to get involved here. And he's about to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. He's going to take them to the land that he promised them. He's going to make them the people that he wants them to become. The action leads to invitation. God is not arbitrarily going to work here. He desires partnership and cooperation with his people. So he says to Moses, I want you to go to the elders. The elders are the heads of the various families, the heads of the clans, the leaders in the tribes, and tell them that God has heard their cries. And that God is going to lead them out of Egypt to the land that God promised. And then in Exodus 4, 29 to 31, it says, When they heard that the Lord was concerned and saw their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord. They believed what Moses said, and hope began to rise within them. And their discontentment and their current reality was just painful enough that it served as a catalyst for change. Thirdly, disappointment. The next step was to tell Pharaoh God's plan, that God wanted to lead his people out. And so there was an invitation. 
that Moses was extending. Pharaoh, we want to journey and do this sacrifice to the Lord with the elders, and we want you to come with us because God is asking that you release his people and let them go. Pharaoh says, I'm not doing that. You guys are lazy. You just don't want to work. I'm not cooperating with that. I'm not answering to this God. And so instead of facilitating God's request to release his people, he increased their labor. Now, bricks at this time were made from clay, but the stubble left at the base of the grain stalks were cut and used to strengthen and reinforce the strength of the clay. Well, up until now, those making the bricks had the stubble provided to them. But now, he said, not only are you going to make the bricks, but you're going to go out and you're going to gather your own stubble. And not only that, but I expect you to produce at the same level as you did before. Well, it's an unrealistic expectation. It's impossible. And so the people began to be beaten because their quotas weren't being met. God's plan, thanks a lot, God. You know, we were here in our misery and it was bad enough, and then you get involved, and now it's a lot worse. This is worse. It's backfiring. And God then reminds them in Exodus 6, He says, I have promised you a land. I will bring you out of Egypt. I will free you. I will judge your oppressors. You will be my people. I will be your God. Your present circumstances will not change the promise I made to you. Now, I'd like to tell you that they all said, oh, okay, God, if that's what you say, then that's good enough for me. But that's not what happened. It says that they were so discouraged by their circumstances that they wouldn't listen. Now, the word discouraged means shortness of breath. Now, a lot of us experience that for various reasons. I had some recent heart tests done and found out my heart was excellent, but he told me I was I was under-conditioned. New term, never heard it before. My heart is great, you're under-conditioned. Shortness of breath. Deep anguish that affects the breathing. It's like when you're sobbing so hard you can't get your breath. Ever have one of those moments? Or anyone who's raised a child, your child is, pray, is, is crying so hard and all of a sudden nothing's coming out. They're getting very red in the face, right? And you're just waiting for them to breathe again. They can't breathe. They're crying so hard. Well, that's the language that's used here. But through a series of miracles, despite how the people were feeling, God finally got permission to lead his people out of Egypt. But I want us to see that despite the miracles and the promise for a better life, despite the freedom to walk away, the people are fragile. They're vulnerable because of their disappointment. Because of what they've experienced. In fact, in Exodus 13, and I've never seen this before until this week, it tells us that the shortest route would have been to go through Philistine country. But it says, but God didn't lead them that way because in the event of war, that he was concerned that they might change their minds and go back. They're vulnerable. They're broken. But nevertheless, they exited Egypt. And the cloud led them by day and the fire led them around the desert by night and they come to the Red Sea. The journey from here to there had begun. It was a journey that was possible to complete in only 40 days. It was a 40-day journey. But it took 40 years because it wasn't just about arriving. 
It wasn't just about changing locations from here to there. It wasn't just about the destination, the land. It was about God preparing His people. It was a formational journey of becoming the people of God. In 40 days, they would not have become the people of God. It took 40 years to get from here to there because it took 40 years to form them to the point that they could be the people of God. So, what is this? How does this help us? Three things. Here is not there. Now, this is profound. Stay with me. You are here. We as a church were here. You got that? We're here. But God wants to take us there. Okay? He has a plan for us. He has a promise that He's made to us. He has a purpose for us as individuals who sit in these seats this morning and as EPC as a whole. God has a plan. God has a purpose for us. God has a promise that He's made to us. And His purpose is ultimately to make us His people to make us His people, to form us in the image of His Son, to use us in the work of the kingdom. That's what God wants to do. And so He's inviting us to embark on a journey with Him because the journey will be as important as the final destination in becoming the people of God. Now you hear the leadership around here talking about wanting to become a church that focuses primarily on Jesus' call to make disciples. You see some of the comfortable things that we've come to enjoy not really being given the same priority anymore as we shift our focus towards obedience to the vision. And we struggle because we've become comfortable. Maybe all we wanted was we just want to come in on Sunday and enjoy a nice worship service where they sing songs I like, where the leader is my favorite, and I just sense and feel the presence of God, and I just, I just, I just want that. I just want to come in and there's a, a solid message that's got teaching, but it's inspirational, and it's, it's not too long. It's not as short as Pastor Kevin, but not as long as Pastor Mark. So somewhere in the sweet zone. All I want is some programs for me and my family that I'm used to. And of course, I want it all done at the right volume of sound with the right temperature of comfort. And I would suggest this morning that when Jesus said that He would build His church and the gates of hell would not prevail, that these are not the things He had in mind. It's not what he was thinking. Folks, Jesus didn't die to build gatherings where people's worship preferences could be met. 
He didn't die to build gatherings where your favorite preacher could preach in your favorite way. He didn't do it for that. He didn't die so that there could be gatherings where all your program preferences could be met. He didn't die so we could create an environment where you could come and be served but not serve others. He didn't die so you could come and benefit from the generosity of others but not be generous yourself. That's not why he died. He didn't die so we could come in and out on a spiritual whim when we feel like we're close enough to God to show up, but then we're distracted enough not to come. That's not what he died for. That's not what he died for. He died to create a people who would have relationship with him, who would understand that death is necessary to know life. He died so that we could understand that we can give everything that we have because the treasure of the kingdom is so valuable, we can't help ourselves. He died so we would understand that it's not about us or our preferences or our comforts, but it's about Jesus and his heart for a broken and hurting and marginalized culture of people who are spiraling outside of this place out of control and are in desperate need of the love and grace of Jesus Christ shown to them by Jesus' representatives in this world. Us. A people who care more about people than we care about issues. You see, here can be good. But if here is not where God wants us, then we're missing out. Jim Collins, famous writer, writes on leadership, says this, good is the enemy of great. And so I plead with you this morning. Yes, I plead with you this morning. Don't settle for good when God is leading us to great. Don't settle for good. Don't settle for here when God is leading us there. Don't settle. And if you have any energy left, if you have a voice to be heard, if you have resources to give, don't use them to fight to stay here where you are comfortable and everything you want is met. Don't use it for that. Don't use it to maintain your comfort. Give it to Jesus so he can use it to help us get from here to there. Here is not there. As good as you may think here is, here is not there. Secondly, pick your pain. I'm going to have a heart attack. Mark Batterson in his book, All In, makes this statement. From my opinion, he borrows it from hundreds of others, so, but he does make the statement, so I'll give him the credit. He says, change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. Change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. There will be pain whether we choose to stay here or whether we choose 
to go there. If we stay here, we're going to know the pain of longing. We're going to know the pain of discontentment. We're going to know the pain of a hunger for more. We're going to know the pain of deep dissatisfaction and emptiness. We're going to know the pain and sense that something significant is missing from all of this. That is the pain of staying here. But if we go there, we're going to experience the pain of changing. And change is painful. We're going to know the pain of giving some things up. We're going to know the pain of leaving some things behind that we deem to be very, very important. And so the point is this. Whether you do something or whether you do nothing, whether you stay here or whether you go there, it will involve pain and discomfort. But the question for us this morning is which one is most important to us? I want to remind us today that every great revival in the history of the church started with someone who felt that here was not enough, that God had something more there, and they paid the price, and they took a step of faith. And whether it's John Wesley or Hudson Taylor who walked into his leadership in his church and said, God is calling me to China. And they said, young man, sit down. If God wants to reach China, he'll do it without your help or mine. And he went anyway and brought 800 missionaries into China and saw countless people changed. Spent 51 years of his life. And today, the power of the underground church in China links all the way back to a man who said, here is not good enough. God is calling me there. Thank you. There were people who dared to go when staying was easy and comfortable. And the kingdom and you and I have benefited. Folks, we're a revival movement as Pentecostals. We chase, trace our history to 1901, Topeka, Kansas, Charles Parham sitting in that little Bible college with this small handful of students. It's Christmas break, and he says, I have an assignment for you over Christmas. Who gives an assignment over Christmas? It says, I want you to study the book of Acts, and I want you to look around because every church is telling us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit for mission is no longer relevant to today. And I want you to study the Scriptures and come back and tell me what you conclude. And as they met in January, the students unanimously said, we believe that it is relevant for today. And as a result of a prayer meeting, Parham himself had not experienced this experience. But this young woman named Agnes Osmond is the first recorded person in this modern-day movement to be filled with the Spirit. And from there he goes to Houston, And because of Jim Crow laws, blacks and whites couldn't be in the same classroom. And this young black holiness preacher is sitting in the hallway because he's not allowed in the classroom. And Parham is teaching on the Holy Spirit. And he's taking it in and from there accepts a call to Los Angeles and starts Azusa Street Church. And under even the criticism of his mentor, Charles Parham, continues on and and sparks what has become one of the great revivals in the history of the church the fastest growing denomination worldwide. The point is this. Pick your pain. 
You can have pain here with dissatisfaction and emptiness and longing for more, or you can go there with great sacrifice and cost and see God do something significant. Thirdly, finally, it gets worse before it gets better. Sometimes, like the Israelites, we believe that because God is in it, it's going to be easy. That's not my testimony, and I believe it's not yours either. Because God's in it, it's going to be easy, but then it gets hard. In fact, it gets worse than we could have ever imagined. And when that happens, we get discouraged. We begin to doubt our ability to even know the voice of God. Was that you, really you, God? Like maybe it was pizza late at night or, or something else. I don't even know if I know how to hear the voice of God anymore. I don't know if I can know the leading of God anymore. And, and you just want to give up because you started out doing what God asked and it's, it's really hard. Now this may come as a shock to you. But I was once an athlete. Stop laughing. I'm being vulnerable. I was once an athlete. In my mind, I'm still an athlete. I can call plays from my recliner that the Green Bay Packers should be implementing. In my mind, I'm still an athlete. Somewhere in my house in a box, there are trophies that mark championships and an MVP and an athlete of the year. Yeah, in my house with my name on them. I remember running stops and starts until I wanted to throw up. I remember practicing before school and after school and on weekends. I remember being bored with drills. Those of you who are still athletes, you know what I'm talking about? Hating the drills. I just want to play the game. I just want to play the game. I just want the excitement of the competition. And when you first start working out, you're so sore. You can't even move. But then you learn quickly, no pain, no gain, right? But the time comes when somehow, miraculously, you start to feel good. And all what used to make you sick now feels good and invigorating. And the point is this, it often gets worse before it gets better. Jesus had to endure the cross before he could rise from the dead. Before the victory comes the sacrifice. And I even shared with you a few weeks back that I knew that going from here to there in the vision that God has given us would not be easy. I knew there would be losses. I knew there'd be pushback. I knew there'd be struggles. But I was willing to pick the pain of there over the pain of here until a few months into the process when the losses started to pile up. And I felt like the Israelites vulnerable and fragile, questioning. Why didn't we just leave well enough alone? Just keep everybody happy. Not that that's possible, but focus on that. But the answer is this. We can't stay here when God wants to take us there. We just can't. So yes, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I want to tell you today, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And I've determined as your leader, I'm not giving up. I'm not going to grow weary and well in doing. I'm not going to back off. 
I'm not going to default like a rubber band back to, to what was comfortable. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to grow weary in doing good because I believe that God is calling us to something and I believe that if we keep faithful and we keep going, that eventually we are going to reap the benefit if we don't give up. And so we don't give up. But it gets worse before it gets better. Folks, it's not unicorns and rainbows. It's hard work. It's great cost. It's discouraging. It's big commitment. It's changing everything in life. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But the only way you can go from here to there is to pick that pain. And so I'm going to invite our worship team to come back this morning. And I want to remind us, if we're going to get from here to there, it's got to begin with godly discontentment. God, I can't stay here. The pain of staying here is greater than the pain of change. We need to remember that here is not there. Despite how comfortable we might be and how much we like it, here is not there. We need to pick our pain, the pain of the status quo. God didn't put me on this earth to thrive in status quo. Sorry, but he didn't. It gets worse before it gets better. So don't give up when the going gets tough. If we're going to get from here to there, then it begins with a moment of godly discontentment. can't stay here anymore stay here anymore. Would you stand with me this morning? And I'd like to invite you this morning to personal reflection. I, I want you to close your eyes and I'm giving you permission to forget the person next to you. For some of you, that's a goal. I, I'm giving you permission this morning. Forget the person next to you. And between you and God to pray and say, what does this mean for me? How does this connect to what you've been doing in my life? What you're saying to me? Am I so comfortable with what I know that I'm willing to, to survive that rather than the pain of whatever change is necessary to, to go where you want to go, God? What does this mean for me? What are you saying for me? Because as we go as individuals is as we will go as a church. We can't move from here to there as a church if we're not moving from here to there as people. Lord Jesus, as we conclude this time together this morning, we do it hearing your invitation. Come from here to go there. To come from where we are to become a part of something, something greater, something better, something bigger, something more impacting and profound in the kingdom of God. 
And so, Father, this morning, my prayer for all of us, some of us are ready. We're more than ready to make this journey. We're just, we're just so fed up. We just feel so empty, and we just long for something real and something more, and we're, we're ready to do it. We're, we're, we're ready to go. But some of us are like the Israelites in Egypt that we've become so disillusioned and so broken and so disappointed and discouraged that, that we hardly know if we can, we can make the journey. We're fragile. We're vulnerable. But all we know is here, we just can't do this here anymore. And so we're, we're going to come. We're going to go. We're going to be a part of it. Even though we don't feel like we have much to give to it even though we don't even know how committed we really are to it. If you're going, we're going. And so, Father, I pray that in this season, in this church, that you would come alongside us and you would take us on this journey, helping us understand what is necessary to get to where you want us to go. And I pray that all along the way that there will be a willingness and a yielding of ourselves to you and saying, God, if that's what's necessary, then I'm going to do it. If that's what you're asking for, I'm in. Lord, I believe that if we as a family, as a body of believers, can adapt that attitude count me in I want to go from here to there I want great not good God I pray that you would lead us and you would guide us and you would help us in Jesus name we pray